Welcome back to the U.S. Naval History Podcast. I'm your host, Chase Dalton. We left off our last episode at the dawn of the 20th century, fresh off our so-called splendid little war against Spain, where the United States emerged as one of the great powers of the world, and as a colonial one with the acquisition of the Philippines, Puerto Rico, and a few other overseas colonies. Leading the nation into the 20th century was Spanish-American war hero and naval advocate Theodore Roosevelt. Under Roosevelt, the fleet grew, we built the Panama Canal, and the United States began to break free of our isolationist roots and exert more influence on global events. President Roosevelt's successors, President Taft and Wilson, also expanded the Navy, and by the time World War I kicked off, the United States was arguably the most powerful country in the world. But the Navy would not play any significant role in the battles during the war. Instead, as promised in the last episode, I'm going to tell you about the hands-down greatest battleship battle in world history between the German and British main battle fleets at the Battle of Jutland, as well as about the emerging role of submarine warfare that the Germans used particularly effectively during World War I in an attempt to starve out the British. Going back to the Spanish-American War, the country was riding high after absolutely crushing the Spanish and dismantling the remains of their empire in the Spanish-American War, and President William McKinley led the nation with Theodore Roosevelt as his vice president. But less than a year into his presidency, McKinley was assassinated and Teddy Roosevelt became the youngest president in American history. Roosevelt was an early and fierce adherent of Alfred Thayer Mahan's theories on naval power, which included the analysis that countries should build and maintain big, concentrated fleets of capital warships to defeat and drive the big, concentrated fleet of enemy capital warships from the sea in time of war. During the roughly seven years of the Roosevelt presidency, the Navy would expand to over 20 battleships organized into two fleets one for the Atlantic, and one for the Pacific Ocean. During Roosevelt's presidency, the Pacific became an increasing focus for naval planners. Just as China's continued naval rise today makes it clear that they aspire to naval dominance in Asia, planners looking to Asia shortly after the turn of the last century could see the same things in Japan. Japan was transforming itself from an isolated backwater into an industrial powerhouse in a single generation. The Japanese military establishment had also read Mahan's book, The Influence of Sea Power Upon History, and invested heavily in their navy, and during this era began looking for opportunities to expand Japanese influence and territory beyond their home islands. In 1895, Japan defeated China and took Taiwan and the Korean Peninsula and in 1905 defeated the Russian Empire. The Battle of Tsushima and the Russo-Japanese War proved a lot of Mahanian points and the importance of large-caliber, long-range naval guns. With the ascendancy of Japan and the need to protect our new colonies in the Philippines, Roosevelt pushed through the Panama Canal to provide the ability to quickly link the Atlantic and Pacific fleets in case of war. The thing to understand about Panama in the era before air conditioning and other modern amenities, though, was that it was miserable. It was incredibly hot and humid. There was mosquitoes, malaria, yellow fever, swamps, mountains, rainforests, and of course, torrential rain. Various people had been proposing a canal since 1513 when Vasco Nunez del Balboa 
first crossed the Isthmus and thought that it would make a handy shortcut and save the time of sailing around South America. The first serious attempt, though, at planning a canal across Central America began in the early 1800s. But after the construction of the Suez Canal in 1869, a French-led consortium began seriously working on the Panama Canal. A canal across a mountainous jungle proved to be much harder than digging a canal across the flat Egyptian desert. And between 1881, when serious work began, and 1889, over 22,000 men died from disease and accidents attempting to build a canal before abandoning the project. At this time, Panama was a restless province of Colombia, and in 1903, the United States under Theodore Roosevelt encouraged Panamanian rebels to rebel against Colombia. When they did, Roosevelt sent 10 warships and a battalion of Marines to prevent the Colombians from reinforcing their garrisons on the Isthmus, and essentially forced the Colombians to accept Panamanian independence. The new Panamanian government quickly agreed to turn the Panama Canal Zone over to the United States in perpetuity for $10 million. The United States spent the next decade finishing the work that the French had started, and it was a monumental effort. A massive set of sanitation measures reduced mosquito-borne disease, while 75,000 workers toiled to build a series of dams, locks, and artificial lakes before on January 7, 1914, the Panama Canal was completed, linking the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. Elsewhere in Latin America, Roosevelt tacked the country onto an aggressive course. After the combined navies of Britain, Italy, and Germany blockaded the coast of Venezuela in 1902 after the Venezuelan president refused to pay his country's foreign debts, Roosevelt decided that Europe was used to wielding too much influence in our backyard. Various so-called Banana Republic countries in Latin America were constantly going bankrupt or the revolution and providing ample excuse for European powers to interfere in the Western Hemisphere. Wielding the big stick of the U.S. Navy, Roosevelt declared what became known as the Roosevelt Corollary to the Monroe Doctrine. If you don't remember, the Monroe Doctrine was a United States government policy which basically held that any further attempts by European powers to take control of or colonize countries in the Western Hemisphere would be regarded, and here I quote, as the manifestation of an unfriendly disposition towards the United States. Roosevelt's corollary stated that the United States would intervene as a last resort to ensure that other nations in the Western Hemisphere paid their international debts and respected international property. Or in plain English, we're the law around here in these parts, not you. Over the next decades, the corollary served as a justification to use military force to restore internal stability, primarily when American commercial or security interests were threatened in various countries, including Cuba, Nicaragua, Haiti, Mexico, Honduras, and the Dominican Republic. These interventions turned the Caribbean into an American lake and were known as the Banana Wars and often resulted in brutal tactics by both sides, with the United States Marine Corps usually serving as the on-the-ground muscle. There were other theaters where the Navy was involved as well. Marines complemented the Army in fighting a Filipino insurgency in the first years of the new century, and a large force of warships and Marines were stationed in the China Theater. After playing a part in putting down the 1900 Boxer Rebellion in China, a permanent Marine contingent helped guard Western enclaves in Shanghai and what is today Beijing, while Navy gunboats plied the Yangtze River protecting American lives and commerce, until these forces were eventually overrun in the early days of World War II by the Japanese. 
If you want some more detail on these engagements, there are some great books on life in colonial era China. There's been a ton written about American intervention and its consequences today in Latin America. But for the sake of keeping this a general overview, I'm just going to skip most of the details in these theaters. Roosevelt's crowning achievement as a navalist, though, came at the end of his second term, with the sailing of the Great White Fleet. A fleet of 16 battleships set sail from Hampton Roads, Virginia, in December of 1907. Only a few people knew of the fleet's secret mission to circumnavigate the globe before it left, but soon the intent was obvious. Over the course of the next 14 months, the fleet traveled 43,000 miles, rounding the southern tip of South America before sailing north up the coastline to Seattle, and then crossing the Pacific, touring Asia, across the Indian Ocean, through the Suez Canal Mediterranean, and finally steaming home for the East Coast. The voyage was a public relations triumph. Each of the dozens of port calls the fleet made showed off American naval strength and our ability to project force far from our shores, especially proving to a rising Japan that we could muster a large fleet in the event of war to defend the Philippine Islands. At home, the message was just as clear. If the war against Spain did not make it obvious, this projection of force did. America had arrived, and the Navy was more popular than ever especially after the corpse of Revolutionary War hero John Paul Jones was brought back from Paris to its final resting place today below the newly constructed United States Naval Academy Chapel amid great fanfare. But as moving and impressive as the 16 battleships of the Great White Fleet were, however, they had all been made obsolete just the previous year when the Royal Navy launched the first of her kind, HMS Dreadnought, in 1906. To understand why the Dreadnought was so revolutionary, need to understand a bit about how pre-dreadnought battleships were constructed. Pre-dreadnoughts would usually mount four large bore, 11 to 12 inch guns on two separate turrets, one forward and one aft. These main guns would be supplemented by smaller guns in the seven to nine inch range and a smaller secondary battery of four to six inch guns to fend off torpedo boats. For over a decade prior to the launch of the HMS Dreadnought, naval planners knew that this setup was non-ideal. Mixed caliber of main battery made fire control difficult, and each additional gun mounted also introduced a weak spot in the battleship's armor, and the extra weight reduced the speed of the ship. The HMS Dreadnought was also the first capital ship to replace reciprocating steam engines, which were unreliable and could not sustain high speeds, with turbine engines increasing both her speed and reliability. The Dreadnought could sustain 21 knots compared to the 12 knots or so that a pre-Dreadnought could maintain without the risk of mechanical failure. The HMS Dreadnought wielded a much heavier set of main guns. Her eight all-big-gun armament made fire control much easier and vastly increased the range at which she could fight. The Dreadnought also employed an early form of director firing and had better range-finding equipment than her predecessor, as well as thicker and better armor schemes and improved watertight protection and compartmentalization to minimize catastrophic battle damage. All of these innovations combined allowed her to fight at long range compared to the short ranges of pre-Dreadnought battleships. Do you remember in the last episode, less than a decade before the Dreadnought's launch, where Dewey had to take his force to within a few thousand yards of the Spanish defenders so he could use the full firepower of his large and small guns? Well, this would no longer be necessary, and the speed of the Dreadnought allowed her to choose to fight at long range with accurate fire. The idea of an all-big-gun, dreadnought-like ship was not entirely new, though. 
an Italian ship designer had brought a similar proposal to the Italian government, who had rejected it as too expensive. Both the Japanese and American navies also had begun building ships which incorporated elements of the dreadnought's design prior to the British even laying down the keel of their HMS dreadnought. But the dreadnought was the first all-big-gun battleship with fast, reliable turbine engines and modern fire control and armor schemes. The combination of all these improvements clearly split the ships and navies of the next decade into two categories, those with pre-dreadnought battleships and those with dreadnoughts. None of the technologies that went into the dreadnought were revolutionary, and very few were secret. The construction of the dreadnought was a massive media event meant to show the world the might of the Royal Navy, and once it was known that the British had built such a battleship and she worked well, it was relatively simple for anyone else with the money or industrial capacity to build or buy their own. But this was the sticking point. Every first-class navy now had to rebuild a large part of their fleet from scratch at massive expense. With this resetting of the naval standard, the Germans saw a chance to catch up to the British in terms of naval power. This was stupid on the German part. Prior to 1890, Otto von Bismarck had steered Germany on an utterly masterful diplomatic course of isolating France and managed to keep Britain out of the European alliance system. In the early 1900s, the British had even come hat in hand almost begging Germany to accept them as allies which would have been a natural fit for Germany and allowed the German Empire to continue its slow consolidation of power in Central Europe. But for a lot of reasons, many of which had to do with Kaiser Wilhelm II's obsession with national image, the Germans rejected the British, which basically forced the Brits to ally with their traditional and colonial rivals, the French. Led by Admiral von Tirpitz, the German Navy intensified their warship-building blitz that drove a naval arms race which placed a huge financial strain on both powers and further drove the British to oppose Germany and the European alliance system, which in turn ultimately was a pretty significant factor contributing to World War I turning out the way it did. This summary is skipping over a ton of diplomatic detail, and if you want more detail on the politics and alliances leading up to World War I, there is a podcast which I personally find interesting and goes into minute detail in its first couple of episodes called the Great War Podcast, for those of you history geeks out there. In the years leading up to World War I, the other major technological development was the submarine. The first modern U.S. submarine was the USS Holland, commissioned in 1900. She was a 53-foot-long experimental vessel with one torpedo tube and a pair of 8-inch guns on her deck, and a 50-horsepower gasoline engine that was used when she was surfaced and to recharge her electric battery, which was used when she was submerged. It was a bit of a technological marvel, and contained innovations in ballasting, dive control, and underwater navigation. By 1910, the Navy had commissioned an additional 18 submarines, making the United States by far the leading submarine power at the time. The new technology meant that the size and range of the submarines was limited, and that they were designed for a coastal defense mission but the technology rapidly matured and the Navy kept building steadily more and more advanced submarines. In the 1910s, the Navy also began experimenting with aviation after the Wright brothers had shown that flight was possible in 1903. These early planes were primarily designed for fire control and reconnaissance, and in 1913, the Navy established its first aviation training program at the Pensacola, Florida Navy Yard, where naval aviators still begin their flight training today. In the next episode, we'll cover the interwar years 
and we'll talk pretty extensively about the development of naval aviation and the emergence of carriers, which, spoiler alert, we render all of those fancy dreadnoughts and super dreadnought battleships obsolete. So all of this brings us to World War I. In 1914, Woodrow Wilson was president when the assassination of the Austrian Archduke Ferdinand set off a series of events which would result in the bloodiest period in human history up to this point. The end result of a series of miscalculations and tangling alliances in Europe was that the central powers of Germany, Austria-Hungary, and the Ottoman Empire faced off against France, Britain, and Russia, with a few smaller powers thrown in on either side. After declaring the United States' neutrality at the outbreak of war, Wilson nonetheless began to prepare for the eventuality that we would be dragged into the European fight. As the war dragged on and it became increasingly likely that the United States would get sucked into this bloody conflict, Wilson came around to the idea that the United States needed a navy second to none in order to claim our place and security among the great powers of the world. This second to none statement would represent a new philosophy, one that necessitated overtaking Britain as the premier naval power of the world. To build a navy second to none, Congress passed the 1916 Big Navy Act, which allocated $50 million for 10 new battleships, 6 battlecruisers, 30 submarines, 50 destroyers, and a bunch of naval infrastructure to support all of these new ships. World War I itself was primarily a land war, with bloody trenches that stretched all the way from the Alps in the south to the English Channel on the Western Front. The British did attempt an ambitious amphibious landing campaign to capture the Ottoman Empire's capital of Constantinople, which ended up failing miserably and is one of the more hotly debated topics of World War I history. I tend to personally think that it was a strategically worthwhile risk, but ultimately the entire campaign was poorly executed, which resulted in a decisive Ottoman victory and the political downfall of the then first sea lord of the Admiralty, the guy in charge of the British Navy. Winston Churchill. So as World War I ground on, both sides began feeling the strain of the years of total war. The Russian state was on the verge of collapse and was devolving into a civil war. The French army was mutinying, and on the central power side, Austria-Hungary was faltering, and the Allied blockade of Germany was causing widespread shortages and suffering, and quite frankly, this population was starving to death. And so, faced with their spluttering economy and a deadlocked Western Front, the German High Command reluctantly calculated that if they engaged in unrestricted submarine warfare, they could starve out the British, even though they knew that this stood a good chance of bringing the Americans into the war on the British side. The Germans had early already employed unrestricted submarine warfare in 1915, but after they sank the cruise liner Lusitania and 128 Americans on board died, Wilson and the Kaiser worked out a deal where the Germans would draw back from unrestricted submarine warfare. But at this point, the Germans were growing desperate, and so they gambled. If the British could be forced to surrender before the Americans arrived in force, then Germany would probably be able to negotiate a favorable peace treaty. And so the combination of German submarines restarting their unrestricted submarine warfare, which sank a bunch of American merchant ships in the North Atlantic, And the infamous Zimmerman telegram from Germany, which asked Mexico about an alliance against the United States, gave Wilson the excuse he needed to ask Congress to bring the United States into war on the side of the Allies, which Congress did do on April 2nd, 1917. 
In Europe, the naval strategy was basically one of blockade and commerce raiding. The decisive Allied naval advantage, which existed even before the United States entered the war, allowed the Allies to blockade the Central Powers from a distance. This did give the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians some room to maneuver, and they did conduct a few pretty effective raids against the British and Italian coastlines. But for the most part, the two big battle fleets of dreadnoughts just sat in port and stared each other down. The general German strategy was to keep their entire high seas fleet concentrated, and they hoped to use their whole fleet to engage in a decisive battle with just a portion of Britain's fleet, and to destroy that portion of the fleet, and through that process gain the upper hand in the battleship race, which would allow them to break the blockade. Uh, there turned out to only be one major battle between the two fleets, and it was a German attempt to catch the British by surprise at the Battle of Jutland a.k.a. the biggest, baddest battleship battle in world history. Shortly before the Battle of Jutland, the old conservative commander-in-chief of the Imperial German High Seas Fleet died, and he was replaced by a younger, more aggressive guy named Vice Admiral Reinhard Scheer. And the officers and men of the fleet were pretty happy, because in the past year they just basically sat in port, and it was really monotonous, and there were no real chance of meeting the British in battle. But Scheer believed that his German ships, his officers, his men, they were all superior to their British counterparts, and he was determined to take the fleet out and prove it. Since the British weren't maintaining a tight blockade of the German coast, because that would leave small groups of ships vulnerable outside of the port, Scheer planned to use his light forces to draw the British out piecemeal by attacking coastal towns with destroyers and cruisers and zeppelins, and forcing the Royal Navy to defend the homeland. And so he spent a couple of months trying to tie a perfect operation together uh, that would put the German fleet in a superior position. And finally, after things went sort of okay, on May 31st, 1916, the German battle fleet, which included 16 of Germany's 18 dreadnoughts, set course for North. And the German sailors at this point, they had to be wondering, would today be Der Tag, the day? that the fleet had been waiting for and building up to for years. But here, already the German plan was starting to fall apart, even though they didn't know it yet. Part of the reason that the Germans were sorting out then was to provide a bait for a submarine ambush. Because if you remember earlier, the Germans had withdrawn their submarine force from unrestricted submarine warfare. And they then placed them all outside of the English ports where the English fleet would sail from, and they were hoping that when the English fleet came out, the submarines would be able to ambush them. But the submarines basically failed at that miserably. They laid a bunch of mines, which did not strike a single British ship. They launched no torpedoes at the British, and they even failed to provide any useful warning of the British movements. And so on the 31st, the British get the news of the German fleet heading out, and the 150-ship British Grand Fleet under Admiral Jellicoe is eager to vanquish the German threat and started converging on their position, and all this time, Scheer had no idea. And so, right now, the stage is set for the battle where the British had all of the advantages. More ships overall, they had 28 dreadnoughts, Germany 16, they had more heavy guns, they had bigger guns, and the battle line even had a small speed advantage. And so on an intercept course for the German fleet, 
but they didn't quite find them where they expected. The British began to doubt if their intelligence was correct. Many of the old line Royal Navy officers had a habit of looking down on their intelligence and code breaking civilians who worked for them. And there was a, a captain, crucially on the morning of the 31st, who failed to grasp the importance of the intelligence and even asked the right questions from his signals intelligence guys. And he has this quote where he describes them as a party of clever fellows who could decipher coded signals, which, yes, was true, but it was not true in the pejorative sense that the captain meant it. And had the British used their intelligence assets who had broken the German naval codes years ago, they could have intercepted the German fleet about two hours earlier, which would have allowed them two hours more daylight, as it were, at 1420 on May 31st, 1916, the forward elements of the British screen spied the forward elements of the German force through the binoculars. And just eight minutes later, the HMS Galatee fired the first shots of the Battle of Jutland at the German ships on the horizon. Both forces were signaling for action stations, or as we know them in the United States Navy General Quarters. And Royal Navy Admiral Beatty who is in command of the British advance force, charged his ships towards the German advance force, which was commanded by Admiral Hipper. Admiral Hipper turned south to protect his rear, and if all went according to plan, he would draw this partial force of British ships into the jaws of the main German high seas fleet, which was coming up just beyond the horizon behind Hipper's advance force. And so this next hour is known as the run to the south. At 3.45, Two fleets are 16,500 yards apart or so. BD swings his battlecruiser ships into a line of battle. Battlecruisers are basically fast and lightly armored dreadnoughts, and they are usually used to scout out the position of the main enemy fleet. Here, the British had far superior local firepower, and Admiral BD felt that he could not help but demolish these isolated Germans. And yet, it's sort of like a historical mystery why Beatty took so long to engage. His ship's 13 and a half inch diameter guns outranged Admiral Hipper's 12 inch and 11 inch guns by a couple of thousand yards. And Admiral Beatty could have opened fire long before Hipper was able to reply. But instead, the British closed in quickly without really firing. And Beatty denied himself a couple of unopposed salvos, which may have made a difference. Um, hard to tell. But at about 16,000 yards, both forces opened fire on each other simultaneously, and with that, the run to the south had begun. So pretty much immediately, it became obvious that the German salvos were as effective as Admiral Scheer had hoped. The German crews were well-trained, and they were assisted by better rangefinders and better gun sights, as well as favorable environmental conditions and they began scoring hits almost immediately on their British opponents from a range of about eight miles, while the returning British fire sometimes fell as much as three miles off the mark. Admiral Hipper, with a cigar clamped between his teeth on the bridge of his flagship, was commanding calmly. Officers there that day recalled, quote, his unruffled calm. Work was carried out exactly as it had been in peacetime operation. Geysers of water 100 feet high were announcing misses and on both sides, the accuracy was now good enough where sailors were being soaked. And then 10 minutes into the engagement, with the range down to 13,000 yards, the British scored their first hit on the German fleet, and four minutes later, their second, 
And so now blood was mixing with the seawater on both sides. But the Germans were getting the better of this. Just a couple of minutes after that, the German Vonderton, which had been laying just a murderous 11-inch shell after 11-inch shell into the British battlecruiser Indefatigable, sank the first ship of the Battle of Jutland. The Indefatigable was wrapped by secondary explosions and literally blew in half with huge pieces of machinery and armor flying 200 feet in the air. And of her crew of 1,019 men, only three survived. After that, Admiral Beattie allowed the range of the squadrons to open up to 18,000 yards, which was beyond the range of either force. And Admiral Beattie allowed four Queen Elizabeth-class battleships to catch up to his advance force. Now, these Queen Elizabeths were super dreadnoughts. They were the pride of the British fleet. They were fast. They were armed with 15-inch guns. And when the Germans saw these steel beasts coming, Hipper knew that his screening force, better gunnery or not, was now just colossally outmatched. At a range of 19,000 yards, where the Germans couldn't even respond, the British super dreadnoughts just paralleled Hipper's course, swung their guns turrets to port, and launched salvos of 15-inch shells down on the rear two German battlecruisers. With the shells landing in the water so close to their marks that the German hulls were recorded as quivering and reverberating. The next salvo struck the Vonderton with 1,920 pounds of steel and explosives, ripping through her underwater armor and flooding her after compartments. Then it was the Molke's turn, as accurate shells began crushing her as well. And so finally, to escape the destruction, the rearmost two German battlecruisers began zigzagging, sacrificing any real hope of returning accurate fire just so they could avoid some of these British shells that were really bringing a rain of death down on them. As the distances were closing, the five British battlecruisers also began to engage Hipper's entire line of retreating warships. In their retreat, they suffered pretty heavy damage the whole way. Hipper was outgunned, uh, but still his men somehow managed to land five shells in really rapid succession on the HMS Queen Mary, which was another one of Beatty's battlecruisers, and sunk her with the loss of all but 18 of her 1300 soul crew. But the British assault did not stop. In the words of a British officer on board the HMS New Zealand, this second disaster was rather stunning, but the only signal coming from the flagship was battlecruisers, alter course, two points to port, that is, towards the enemy. The British sent 30 destroyers charging into the German line for a torpedo attack, which was countered by German destroyers screening their capital ships in what became a scum, with torpedoes and shells from the destroyer's four-inch guns flying in all directions in the no-man's land between the two lines of capital ships. After 20 minutes of this, Speedy recalled his destroyers. As the British destroyers were turning back, the destroyer captain saw something they couldn't believe. Speedy and his battlecruisers were reversing course and heading north. Apparently, Speedy was running away. Although he cut a heroic figure on the bridge, he was soaked in salt spray and with shrapnel clanging all around him. During the run to the south, which was the first phase of the Battle of Jutland, Beatty clearly lost to Hipper. The German admiral commanded an inferior force, but had managed to sink two British battlecruisers and two British destroyers at the cost of only two German destroyers. Hipper's position was still really dangerous, but the German plan was succeeding in bringing the unsuspecting Beatty ever closer to the 16 dreadnoughts of the Imperial German High Seas Fleet. And now, just as the British were disengaging, Hipper saw, at last, on the horizon, 
Shear's long, pale gray column. Seeing that the tables had now turned, Hipper swung his battlecruisers north again and took up his normal position at the head of the northbound high seas fleet. But going back to the British fleet, when Beatty received the news of the German fleet, he didn't panic. He instead, he smiled, right? He recognized the opportunity here. With any luck, he could pull the same tactic on the Germans that they had tried to use on him, and he could lure the entire German high seas fleet into an ambush. Because at this point, the German admirals, Hipper and Scheer, had no idea that the full might of the British Grand Fleet was behind him. And if he could lure the Germans too far to the north, it would be a massacre, just not the massacre that the Germans had planned. And so here we have British Admiral Beatty retreating north towards the bulk of the British fleet, with the Germans confidently chasing him, until at 6 p.m., reports arrived that must have shaken even veterans Admiral Scheer and Hipper to their core. They saw the Grand Fleet on the horizon. 24 British dreadnoughts and more than 100 screening cruisers and destroyers were only 16,000 yards away and making towards them at 20 knots. Standing on the bridge of his flagship, the HMS Iron Duke, Admiral Jellicoe, the commander-in-chief of the British Grand Fleet, faced the most important decision of his life. How was he going to deploy the might of the Royal Navy against the oncoming German high seas fleet. If he lost decisively, Britain's blockade may well fail, and the entire war with it. If he won decisively, his name would enter the history books next to Lord Admiral Nelson's as one of the greatest Britons of all time. His dreadnoughts were currently steaming in six columns of four ships each, which made them safe from German U-boats, but unable to bring their guns effectively to bear against the German battle line. To fight, Jellicoe needed to swing his six columns into a single battle line, either east to port or west to starboard. The thing is, once this complicated fleet maneuver began, there'd be no reversing the decision in time. So, with horrible visibility among the North Sea mist and fog, to choose early and wrong would expose his column to torpedo attack by the mass German destroyer flotillas, or it could even allow the German battle line advantageous positioning. And so he was working with really incomplete information, but with the best information he had available, he decided to deploy his line to port. And this deployment to port has been called the supreme moment of the naval war, and also the peak moment of the influence of sea power upon history. The deployment seemed to be shaping up just as Admiral Jellicoe had planned. His dreadnoughts were deploying with their battle ensigns streaming in the wind, just as the forward elements of Shear's high seas fleet materialized among the mist to the south as dark silhouettes. As the two main forces began to engage, both fleet commanders, Jellicoe and Shear, were fighting with just absolutely horribly incomplete information in an era where wireless communication was pretty spotty and the visibility range was less than the range of massive battleship guns. But one thing was clear, and it was that the Germans were in a really bad position. The British Grand Fleet was now in a battle line and began a naval tactic called crossing the T, which allowed them to bring their complete firepower to bear against the German battle line, with the Germans basically powerless to shoot back. Scheer couldn't see this from his flagship and wasn't getting reports he needed from his forward captains, and so he couldn't issue a set of coordinated orders to even counter the move. And so as I mentioned, Scheer was in a horrible position. The high seas fleet was 150 miles from home, facing down a superior enemy who he couldn't even outrun. 
there was no realistic hope of winning a classical battles where the ships would set out on a parallel course and just slug it out. And this really was a trap of his own making. And in this, Scheer actually did respond decisively. The German fleet had trained for this sort of possibility of needing to rapidly retreat from a stronger fleet. And at 6.36 p.m., Scheer signaled an order for each of his ships to independently and simultaneously execute a 180-degree turn, which in this case would turn the fleet away from the British Grand Fleet. The practice showed and the execution of this difficult maneuver was pretty darn perfect. In just four minutes, the entire column had reversed course and vanished into the smoke and mist and the falling night of the North Sea. Aboard his flagship, the Iron Duke, Jellicoe was baffled. The high seas fleet had just vanished out from under him before he could even finish deploying his battleships. And with no visibility on the German fleet, Jellicoe began essentially guessing where he thought the Germans had gone and eventually settled on moving his massed fleet southwest on a track that would put the Grand Fleet in position to cut off the eventual return of Scheer's fleet to home base. And just then, for reasons that nobody has ever really offered a great reason for, Scheer decided to throw the dice of fate in history. He ordered his fleet again to reverse course, and again the fleet swung around efficiently and was now steaming in a straight line towards the Grand Fleet. And so maybe Scheer was hoping to catch the British by surprise, or maybe it was just instinct. Scheer's answer to this question varied over time, but regardless, the fleet did re-engage, and that was a big mistake. The vigilant British were not caught by surprise, and Jellicoe took this gift that Scheer had given him and opened fire. The British immediately began landing hits on the German line, while the Germans were essentially firing blind with the British fleet hidden behind the mist. After 10 minutes of extremely one-sided combat, Scheer knew that his gamble was hideously lost and that the only thing left to do was retreat and to try and save as much of the fleet as he could. In order to do this, he would sacrifice anything in order to bring his dreadnoughts back home. And so Scheer issued a series of consequential commands. On his mark, all of his dreadnoughts would again do a 180 and turn for home. And at the same time, his battered battlecruisers would charge the enemy to cover the retreat. This charge would become known as the Death Ride. And so when Scheer gave the signal, the four remaining German battlecruisers charged the British at 20 knots. Two of the battlecruisers were already gravely wounded and on the verge of sinking. And so, in the words of one of the battlecruiser captains, we were steaming into this inferno. Salvo after salvo fell around us, Hit after hit struck our ship. A 15-inch shell pierced the armor of Caesar turret and exploded inside. The turret commander had both legs blown off and most of the gun crew was killed. Poisonous, greenish-yellow gases poured through the aperture into our control. I called out, Dawn gas masks! And every man put his gas mask over his face. We could scarcely see anything of the enemy, who were disposed in a great semicircle around us. All we could see was the great reddish-gold flames spurting from their guns. With his battleships turned around and again making their way for home, Scheer signaled for the battlecruisers to retreat as well. And in their place, the High Seas Fleet Destroyer Swarm, the most expendable of all ships, was sent to cover the retreat of the battlecruisers with a massed charge of their own, where they would lay down a torpedo barrage and a smokescreen to hopefully keep the British at bay long enough for the Germans to disappear. 
None of the torpedoes went on to find their mark in the British line, but the attack did serve its purpose in forcing the British to deflect course. And in the midst of the battle, the Germans disappeared into the fog and smoke at the cost of five sunk destroyers. Scheer had just avoided total annihilation, and for the rest of his life, Jellicoe would be second-guessed on his decision to avoid the German torpedoes and not accept the possible loss of a few battleships for the sake of finishing off the German fleet when they were so clearly within his grasp. From the grand strategy perspective, though, Jellicoe did the right thing. The British didn't really need another Trafalgar. They did not need to destroy the German fleet to secure the nation. They just needed to maintain the status quo so that the British fleet could keep the Germans bottled up and maintain the blockade. The utter destruction of the high seas fleet would not change much, and so I think that history does validate Jellicoe's decision and that he did do the right thing in avoiding even a tiny chance that an unluckily high number of torpedoes would strike his fleet and thus cripple it. And that, for the most part, ended the day's battle. There were a few other very brief skirmishes between isolated squadrons of either fleet, but even this far north in the summer, light was fading in an era almost totally dependent on visuals for fire control. The Germans were widely considered by both sides to be much better trained and equipped for night fighting, and so neither side was really eager to press the fight. But there were only five hours until day would break again, and Scheer's 93 remaining warships still had to find their way home, and a good portion of Jellicoe's 150-ship fleet was still in the way of the most direct path. Ultimately, though, in the night, the Germans managed to pass the British screen mostly unscathed. There were a few minor night actions, but the takeaway is that due to a combination of luck, extremely poor communication on the British part, German signal jamming, and the fact that the criminally incompetent British Admiralty steadfastly ignored and failed to pass along the broken German signals that their intelligence teams were feeding them, the Germans did get away. And when dawn did break in the North Sea, bodies were floating among the debris and oil of the battle, which to Scheer's relief was over. And so who won? Well, both sides do have a claim to victory. The German propaganda machine immediately kicked into high gear, touting and exaggerating the battle damage done to the enemy fleet, while conveniently ignoring many of their own losses. In Britain, the public had been conditioned since birth to expect nothing less than total victory at sea, and since the actual result was more or less a tie, this tie was treated as a loss. Scheer and the Germans could claim victory by comparing the number of ships sunk and seamen killed and wounded because Britain had lost 14 ships to the German 11. The British had suffered more than twice as many casualties as the Germans did. But the German ships did emerge more battered. And more importantly, though, the British could and did quickly replace their losses, which the Germans could not. The status quo was maintained in the British favor and the battle did absolutely nothing to change that. Looking back with the hindsight of historical research, historians generally attribute the higher absolute losses of the British to British command issues, which I've mentioned already, as well as a combination of better German ship design because their ships had heavier armor, better watertight and flashtight integrity, some more redundancy, and generally better ability to absorb battle damage and to some poorly performing British armor-piercing shells. And so this is where I'm going to, at great length, leave off the battle commentary. 
This has been by far the longest battle description, partially because there's only one in this episode and partially because it is the penultimate example of battleship combat in world history. And I think that's pretty cool. If you like this style a bit more, I'm going to reprise it a bit in the World War II episodes. And yes, you heard that correctly. That is episodes. I am leaning towards doing three for World War II, one for the Atlantic and Mediterranean theaters and two on the Pacific War, but that's not finalized yet. Anyway, zooming forward in time past the Battle of Jutland to when the Americans have finally entered World War I, American society at this point was not on a war footing, and it took almost a year after the declaration of war before a really significant American force made their presence felt on the Western Front. The United States Navy would ultimately transport over 900,000 soldiers to France, with a roughly equal number being carried by other Allied navies and the Merchant Marines. A few American dreadnoughts were pretty much immediately sent to reinforce the dominance of the British Grand Fleet, but by far the most significant American naval contribution to the war was our fight against German U-boats in the North Atlantic, and especially after the British proved utterly incapable of destroying captured Belgian naval bases where a lot of the German U-boat fleet was operating out of. To staunch the loss of literally hundreds of ships every month, that the German submarine warfare was inflicting. The Navy adopted a system of convoys where 20 to 25 or so merchantmen were escorted by six to eight small ships serving as escorts across the Atlantic. American industrial might and engineering would also allow a massive 240 mile long stretch of sea between Norway and Scotland to be mined, which served to further pen in German submarines and minimize this risk. During World War I, we also had the first hints of naval aviation. Uh, They were mostly used as scout planes to search for submarines running on the surface, but they did execute some bombing attacks as well on German submarines. And naval aviators were also pretty involved uh, in dueling German planes and bombers over the trenches of France. And really, this is when naval aviation first took off, because prior to the war, naval aviation community was about 300 sailors and 100 planes. And during the war, in about two years, it transformed into a full arm of the Navy with 17,000 sailors and more than 2,000 planes and 200 airships, so basically Zeppelins, and that would continue for the next couple of decades. The final American naval contribution that I'm going to talk about today is our Marine Corps brothers on the Western Front, on the front lines of France. World War I really cemented the Marine Corps role as a light infantry assault force and closed the door on their previous role, which had been ship-to-ship fighters since the range and destructive powers of naval gunnery now made boardings and capturing an enemy ship pretty impossible. On the ground in Europe, Russia had just fallen, and a totally exhausted Germany was now desperately trying to shift all of their forces to the Western Front to overwhelm the equally exhausted French and British before the fresh Americans arrived in force. And in a massive and final offensive, Germans poured everything they had and pushed towards Paris before they were stopped just short by combined French-British-American force. At Belleau Wood, the 2nd and 3rd Marine Divisions famously held the line against advancing German troops, even when the French repeatedly urged them to pull back, leading Marine Corps Captain Lloyd Williams to issue his now famous retort, Retreat? Hail, we just got here. And so the Marines would battle the Germans over the next few weeks in Belleau Wood, 
and it would be the scene of some of the fiercest hand-to-hand combat of the war. And I really think that the Marine spirit is encapsulated in another quote by Marine Corps legend and two-time, should-have-been three-time, Medal of Honor awardee, Gunnery Sergeant Dan Daly in his battle cry, Come on, you sons of bitches, do you want to live forever? Before leading a charge against the German line. So after the Marine Corps stopped the German offensive, the Allies launched a huge offense of their own, which pretty quickly succeeded in forcing the Germans to surrender, the abdication of their emperor, and the end of the First World War. And here, I just want to quote from a book called America, Sea Power in the World, because I can't sum up the influence of sea power any better myself on this war. And to quote, No other war more clearly demonstrates the importance of sea power than World War I. The conflict began on land, and the belligerents devoted the vast majority of their manpower and resources to land warfare. But it was the war at sea which proved decisive. When the war on land reached a deadlock, Germany, growing desperate as the Allied blockade strangled the central powers by starving them of resources of all types, adopted unrestricted submarine warfare, a strategy that led the United States to join the Allies, thereby tipping the balance conclusively against Germany and Austria. Victory at sea brought victory everywhere. This is where I'm going to leave this rather long episode. America is now a full member of the Great Power Club, maybe even the dominant one by some measures, and our Navy is, if not second to none, at least second to only one, that of our ally Britain. Next episode is going to be a mini one covering the interwar years where the Navy undergoes some really important technological changes, especially regarding naval aviation and amphibious warfare that I'm going to focus on, as well as a few geopolitical events and treaties that set the stage for the biggest and most consequential war that the United States Navy has ever participated in, that World War II. While doing research for each episode, I always feel that I could keep going for hours about cool little details and quotes and characters, but I always have to restrain myself to keep this podcast true to what I want it to be, which is a top-level survey of American naval history. And I'm going to break this rule a little bit, though, for World War II, since the war was so foundational to the Navy and really the world today, and the Navy was just involved in so many battles and campaigns. And so... Signing off, I want to thank you for sticking around. I will see you next week. And importantly, please rate, subscribe, tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell anyone you think might be interested about this podcast. And I will see you next week.